listening to Musically Speaking on 91.9 KBCR. My name is Margaret Worsley, and I'm Associate Professor of Music at San Bernardino Valley College, talking today with Michelle and Michael Takia, longtime music educators for the San Bernardino area and beyond. This music educator power couple have been teaching music in the Inland Empire for more than 30 years. Known as the Brasso Takia duo, Michelle and Michael have performed throughout the United States, Mexico, and Europe. They have worked with some of the world's finest musicians and seek to share this experience with their students in opening eyes to the wonderful world of music. Michelle and Michael, thank you both so much for joining us in the studio today. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Michelle, I've seen you've studied all over the place from Cal State San Bernardino. You've got a master's degree from San Diego State University. You studied at the New England Conservatory in Boston, the Vienna International Music Center in Austria, and at San Francisco State University. Where are you originally from? Oh, boy. Fontana, California. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Uh, We had a very strong uh, music program in Fontana in the district in those years, in the 1960s. And uh, it launched me. Yeah. So you're a local, born and bred. Yes. That's so wonderful. What happened was I had a very high-powered younger brother who was playing violin at a very advanced level. And when the orchestra teacher at our elementary school heard him, he said, do you have any siblings? Because he knows it runs in families. <laughs> and so he introduced me to the cello, and I didn't really even know what a cello was at that point. I, I was studying piano a little bit. And uh, he gave my family tickets to hear the Riverside Symphony, actually. Mm. And they were doing the Brahms double with the uh, principal players of the L.A. Phil. And we were sitting fairly close to the musicians, and I saw that cello. And I turned to my mother and I said, I want to do that. (laughs) And the rest is history. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And Michael, um, can you share just a bit of your background with us? Um, I started playing when I was later. I was not a child prodigy like these six and seven-year-olds that are doing Rachmaninoff concerti. Um, I had private lessons. I came from a a lower middle class family and couldn't afford lessons until I was about 12. But I had a very, very uh, sympathetic teacher at 12 that uh, gave me a a good foundation. And that was in Fontana as well. From that point, my real trigger uh, of going into music came when I was in 10th grade. Um, I was a student at San Gorgonio, which was still a new high school. And I had a teacher um, named Elka Ellison. And, um, and she put on a recording of uh, Chopin Polonaises during the history test. Um, I heard this Chopin Polonaise in E-flat minor, and it just haunted me. It was the most beautiful thing I ever heard. And I remember thinking to myself, I must play that. I must play that. So I made this transition, or I should say a leap, from doing little Clementi sonatinas to major works of Chopin, I had to find a score of it first. And it's not like today where you can just go online and download a score. You had to find a music store. You had to, if they didn't have it, you had to order it. And then you had to mow a few lawns to be able to afford the score. <laughs> Indeed. So that's uh, exactly, exactly how it played out. And uh, from that point on, I just uh, excelled. 
And um, there was no stopping me from that point. Very and, cool. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we used to really have to work for our music. Oh, yeah. Now it's all the, li- the Internet it's... is lousy with free music. Oh, God, now. isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> a- anything you want. Yeah. So you're a pianist and, Michelle, you're a cellist, um, both musicians. How did the two of you meet? May I? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so... Before we knew each other, Michael was accompanying violin students of a prominent violin teacher in the area mm-hmm. by the name of Frank Scully. And one of the girls that was in my orchestra in Fontana was a student of his. And she used to tell me all the time, oh, we have this great accompanist. Oh, you've got to meet him. He's just so great. So I just let that go. And one day, this uh, gentleman, Frank Scully, bought a whole row of tickets to a concert at the California Theater would end up being a concert of Isolisti de Zagreb on the Valley Community Concert Association concert series. He just gave them out. He gave them out to his violin students. He gave them out to her. She gave them out to to me and to my brother. And so a whole bunch of us ended up in the same row at the California Theater. I can still remember where those seats are. (laughs) And that was in 1972. And our seats were next to each other. And when the concert started, they were going to play the Mozart K136 uh, Divertimento. And I said, oh, I just played that in Hollywood with my group. And he goes, you what? And I said, well, I just performed that. And so then the concert was ready to start. We listened, and already he was, oh, boy. Uh, Love it first. Yeah. (laughs) So we exchanged uh, numbers after the concert, and um, I was playing a a show at my high school. He was already in college. He was working on a show at his school at Cal State. Several days later, we spoke on the phone, and I invited him to the show that my high school was putting on. He came, and he asked my mother's permission to drive me home, which kind of scared me because he was already in college, and I was still in high school. I was very naive. When we got to my house, he said, reach under the seat and take out whatever you find. And I thought, oh, brother, I'm in trouble now. I don't know what this is. I thought maybe something bad. And it was. It automatically meant, uh, you know, drugs or marijuana well, or something. Oh, if, you had a, if you had a plastic bag under, a, yeah. under your seat. Got it. So when I took it out from under the car seat, it was the Beethoven cello sonatas. <laughs> I was never so happy to see that music. Oh, was that your first present? That yes. Was, that was my first present. And that was 50 yeah. years ago yeah. on Monday. On Monday. Oh, happy anniversary, you two. <laughs> Thank you. That is so I, special. I had a little preparation for, I loved the cello to begin with, even before uh, Michelle. Um, I had a, a friend that was one of my best friends growing up uh, in this area who was a cellist, and we did a lot of the solo ensemble festivals where we'd play. I loved the cello so much, and I enjoyed playing that, and I often wondered if uh, if cellists came in female models at that time, you know, and I, and I was so, I think that was part of the delight, meeting it meeting the cellist, you know, so. Of course. That is so special, partners in love and in life. <laughs> Do you think there are some advantages to being able to realize a professional vision with your life partner? Absolutely. 
Um, yes, it's it's a great advantage because music is your life and you, you talk about it every day. You have to schedule rehearsals just like you would anywhere else. It's, it's, a, it's a joy to rehearse. But remember, you're husband and wife, and there are conflicts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you could, it, the worst thing is if you've just had an argument or something, and then you have to rehearse or you have to perform. So that's the great struggle in life. Uh, but you have to put that aside, and you have to be, you know, very professional about it. I remember um, having this conversation with uh, the, the chairperson at San Diego State, who was a cellist. And uh, we gave a concert down at San Diego State one time, and he asked me that question because his wife was a rather uh, a high-profile pianist as well. He says, tell me, do, do you guys argue? I mean, if you have an argument, how do you, how do you continue on, and, or, or what's, how do you solve problems? And I, before I could answer that question, he said, well, he inserted that we have our own way of dealing with this. When we sit down to rehearse, we have an agreement that the first person to try to give the other one a lesson has to cook dinner. <laughs> Do you have the same contract? <laughs> well, if I was a better cook, we'd have that. Uh, we'd have that contract. <laughs> that is too funny. But you work it out. That's you so work, wonderful. You work it out, and of course, the joy is it's with the person you love, and and the the rewards are great when you when you perform because. It doesn't take as much rehearsal as as it would with a stranger because you know their way of playing, you know what to do, you you sense their movement, you sense their breathing, and ensemble just seems to be second nature. This is Musically Speaking. I'm Margaret Worsley, talking today with Michelle and Michael Takia, who are a beloved musician couple in the community. So you've been dedicating your lives to serving the students of San Bernardino and the Inland Empire for a long time in various educational capacities. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit more about Symphony Jeunesse? Um, What does that experience look like for students, and how often do you perform? So on. Thank you. Well, before COVID, uh, we performed a lot. Uh, This has sort of set us back a little bit in terms of performing and some rehearsing, but... Um, what happened was I was hired by the district to establish and build a strings program, which I did over many years. Well, by the time the kids had finished three or four years in a strings program with a string educator, when they went to the next level, they were usually with a band teacher, and that's fine, but they probably had more knowledge about their subject than they were getting. So it wasn't okay to just go sit in the flute section in the band with a violin and a flute book. <laughs> no. um, so they, many of them came back to me with tears in their eyes. Mrs. Takia, isn't there something for us? Isn't there an orchestra? So one day a 15-year-old approached me who, who had been my student in elementary, and she said, do you think you might ever start a youth orchestra for kids like me? And of course, that just went straight to my heart. And I, I, I was already teaching, I don't know, eight, ten classes a day before school, lunchtime, after school, preparing kids for whatever it was they were doing. And I thought, where in the world? How am I going to fit that into a schedule? But I knew that it was very important. So I started thinking, well, perhaps Saturdays, because that's when kids might be available. So I approached a number of people in the city about starting such a thing. And uh, I got great support. Um, 
And in 2008, I was able to uh, hold auditions. Twelve children walked through the door about, oh, maybe ages 12, 13, 14, 15, something like that. And they auditioned, and we started an orchestra with 12 children. And it grew from there. Uh, the largest it probably ever was was 35 to 40, but I, I usually keep it at about to 25. So it's a chamber orchestra of strings. They have performed all over the Southland. We have taken them on nine tours to Central Coast, California. Um, they play incredibly well. They have very diverse abilities and backgrounds depending on whatever is offered at their school. In some cases, there's nothing offered at the school. So I use a mentorship program wherein a student who has a lot of experience might partner or sit with a student who is younger or doesn't have as much orchestral experience. And I provide ways for the kids to grow within that program. I never thought that when I was 53, I would start conducting and and found an orchestra for uh, teenage children. At first, I thought, what if they don't even like me? I, I had so many self-doubts, but I was so wrong. And we have had a great journey and continue to. We were able to give a concert in November. It was a memorial concert. We, we would be remiss if we didn't mention where we got the seed money to start yes. the orchestra because uh, Ernie Garcia, who has, of course, been a real treasure for the uh, Inland Empire, for San Bernardino, as well as his wife, Dottie Garcia, Michelle had approached him or he had approached you. I did ask I think him. It was, it was mutual. And uh, Ernie was able to find a means to fund the orchestra for their first year or, for their, or to seed money to get it started. And without that, it would not have been possible to, to build something of the, of the magnitude that you, that you did come up with. I just wanted to insert that. I am so grateful to Dr. Garcia and to the organization uh, that helped fund that and allow it to be able to, to lift off and to take shape. It's, it's become a real jewel in the crown in the community. In November, when we gave the, the memorial concert, the children came back from the whole COVID experience in a very shy way. They were they couldn't look me in the eye. They they were anxious about their playing. Mrs. Taki, I, I don't feel that my playing is where it was before COVID. You know, we haven't had an opportunity to play. Some didn't have instruments. Um, there were a number of reasons. And uh, in, I would say, two and a half months, starting the beginning of August this uh, in 2021, to November 21st, they grew immensely as a blended chamber orchestra of musicians working together. Uh, we have a child as young as nine. I didn't open the orchestra for children that young, but the kids had been uh, sequestered long enough, and I wasn't in a position or in a mood to say, no, you have to wait two more years. They've already waited. Mm. I wanted them to be able to play, and I knew that we had 
scaffolding in place to be able to provide for the young musicians that were auditioning or kids who had no music at their school. And kids had become increasingly withdrawn yes. during the COVID years. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very difficult at first to bring them out of their shells. They were um, reticent. reticent and um, uh, certainly very inward. Um, and so it had it had its uh, uh, great psychological effect on children, on musicians in, in particular, having this kind of um, seclusion during this time. What a wonderful opportunity for young string players um, and the importance of that now more than ever. Yes. That's really incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned it is a chamber orchestra, so it's strings only. Do you allow any wind players or no? Well, we haven't had wind players, and I... Th- I think because, you know, they've been string players, and it is sort of, you know, exclusive, and it, it's my training, too. Um, I don't know that I would be able to uh, help wind and brass and percussion players the way I can help string players, so I have kept it sort of in-house, and there's so much wonderful literature for the kids. And I know you said that tentatively uh, about being solely strings. However, I often sense the urge to want to open it to a full orchestra with winds in you. And I remember uh, Mayor Patrick Morris approaching you about the same thing. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I should clarify something. You mentioned memorial, but with mm-hmm. no uh, uh, nothing accompanying that. It was a memorial for the... Um, for Patrick Morris's wife who passed away, Sally Morris. And that was our first, your first post-COVID performance. And he has been also a great support, uh, the former mayor of San Bernardino, in promoting the orchestra and, uh, you know, giving it life in the community. I think I should say that. Patrick and Sally have been at every concert we have done over the 12 years of our existence. We're in our thirteenth season now, and it was a it was a wonderful, um, wonderful memorial to to her to her family. Mm. Music can be so powerful oh. in those moments. Yes, yes. Um, is there any enrollment uh, window, or can students join any time? And where should interested students and parents go for more information about Symphony Jeunesse? We do have a website. I'm not techno, and I don't manage it, so I'm <laughs> not entirely sure. But I think if they go to um, Symphony Jeunesse, all one word, dot org, I think, um, they should be able to find uh, information. Um, or enter your name, Michelle with one L, Takia with two C's, like in zucchini. <laughs> and, um, and I think that will get you there as well, or it will, re- will refer you to the Symphony Jeunesse, because I can't, you can't expect everyone to know how Symphony Jeunesse is spelled. So they can so. find you on Google. <clears throat> yes. Okay. Exactly. You can be <laughs> yes. Googled. Very I, good. They need to have, you know, I would say at least a couple of years of string education training yeah or elementary or junior high yeah before coming to audition okay and then you'll take care of the rest Mm -hmm. (laughs) very good let me take a moment to reintroduce you i'm chatting today with michelle and michael takia musicians and music educators for the inland empire area and founders of the youth orchestra symphony jeunesse 
I'd love to dig into music education just a little bit. Um, do either of you have a specific mentor or former teacher you find yourself repeating most frequently in your pedagogy? Cool. Should I take that one yes. first? Um, I think it's perhaps axiomatic that one can count the truly great teachers they've had in their life on the fingers of one hand mm. and uh, and their profound influence on us. My own personal musical influence, there were, there were two of them specifically. Uh, one was um, a brilliant concert pianist, a Polish concert pianist, and her name was Marie Astor, and she taught at Cal State San Bernardino for many years, and I was fortunate enough to to study with her. She was she had been a student of uh, great performers like Ed, Edwin Fisher, um, Walter Kiesikin. Um She is the one that really infused the the great joy and and love of music in me uh, as a student. Not to mention you know great uh, musical and technical training on the piano. And uh, the other one would have been it would be Richard Saylor, who was the chairman of the music department at Cal State San Bernardino. I think one of the first music chairmen there uh, when the college opened, and he was a, a great inspiration. He was the founder of the Cal State Chamber Orchestra, of which Michelle was the principal cellist for many years while she was there as a student. Nice and. Um, we were given such abundant experiences in repertoire and doing solos that we never would have found at a at a bigger school where maybe if you're a flautist you get to do one movement of a Brahms symphony per per year or semester or whatever but we had abundant uh, orchestral experience doing that and I think those two are are great influences of mine and Michelle I shouldn't speak for you because I know you have different um, influences. What about you, Michelle? Who do you find yourself repeating most in your oh, teaching? Boy. Well, there's so many that influence you both positively and negatively. For instance, if a student brings a work to me that's maybe too demanding or just not at their level yet, but they've fallen in love with this piece of music and they really want to play it, but they need some things that come before that in order to get to that level, I don't discourage that. I allow them to see that they need more preparation before they get to that level. When I met Michael at age 17 and I got those Beethoven cello sonatas, well, of course, we wanted to work on them together. But the teacher that I had said, you have to do that on your own time because I'm not helping you with it. Well, that was something that I kept tucked away and I thought... I. If I decide to teach, I would not ever do that to a student. Mm. Um, I would allow them to, you know, see that, oh, well, I don't know how to do this, so let's do something that's, you know, uh, prepares me for that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, that's sort of a a negative but turned, you know, to a positive way of approaching. Um, when When I got the Beethoven... Michael and I learned it in a very, very short time, like two months. Yeah. And I used it as audition material to um, the music department at Cal State. And um, I wanted to go there, but they didn't have a cello teacher. Mm. So I spoke to Dr. Richard Saylor, and he didn't 
he didn't have anyone for me. And I said, well, then I suppose I may as well stay with the teacher that I'm currently studying with in high school. And uh, he went searching, and he found a wonderful, wonderful player and teacher, mentor, uh, Kathy Graff. And she... Was on the faculty at UC Riverside. Yes. Oh, great. And she came on board at Cal State for me. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience to work with her. She had such a rich background, a lot of Baroque playing in uh, Northern California, also in Europe. Um, Just a wonderful teacher. And then when she went on sabbatical, she chose for me a wonderful teacher in Claremont, um, Dr. Elmer Tolstead, who was... um, actually in the math department, but a wonderful cellist. <laughs> for goodness sake. Yes. <laughs> and so I got to study with him for for a while, and that was also a wonderful, uh, wonderful, wonderful collaboration. Um, I guess, you, you know, you take the good with the bad and sift it out and use what is valuable for the students that you're preparing. Absolutely. In, in many facets of life, for sure. Yes. It, I, I love how um, the experiences of our teachers can, can really provide such a rich, mm-hmm. um, a rich education, in, especially in music. Yes. Um, and I know that your students get the same from you. Thanks. It's you. very special. Are there composers that you just love teaching students about <laughs> um, or composers that are maybe integral to a, a musical upbringing? You know, I can't remember a time in my own life as a child hearing anything popular. The Zenith radio was turned to KFAC in Los Angeles, and we listened to classical music and the opera on Saturdays, and Mm -hmm. that's the way it was. And if you so much as went to turn the dial on the radio to hear something else, that was not okay from French father who said, no, no, you know. <laughs> so and, and a German mother, both European parents. <laughs> oh, very good. Come with a, so with you're first generation. Music. I am first generation. Wonderful. Yes. Yes. What, no wonder you're so hardworking. <laughs> That's great. So um, as far as specific composers, what do you think? Well, you know, I think I, I suppose it depends what I'm working on at the moment. You know, I, I try to teach them broadly about as many uh, composers as I can, as many musicians as I can. In fact, during the whole pandemic year and a half, um, my orchestra board president, Naomi Meyerson, and I came up with the idea for a newsletter. So each month we would have educational, um, you know, uh, maybe about a certain composer or themed when it was, you know, in March, I think, women composers. In February, I think, you know, African-American composers. And we tried to feature as many composers and musicians in whatever their, you know, uh, subject was um, in this newsletter so that we kept the kids, you know, tethered to music. And even though they weren't able to play together uh, at, during that time, we were able to educate them with, you know, things like um, interesting musical facts and so forth. So I don't know. I just whatever is available, I just embrace it and bring it in and just start, you know, teaching it. Yes, that is so great. And 
I was just going to ask, now that musicians are finally starting to recover from limited performances during a pandemic, what does the future look like for Symphony Jeunesse? Um, and do you have any pertinent takeaways from the pandemic experience? It sounds like this newsletter might have been one of them. Yes, I, I, I'm very, very glad to have featured that. I supplied the content, and my board president, Naomi, uh, supplied the whole layout, as you know, I'm not techno or visual or any of that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we have this whole series of a year long of, of um, wonderful letters that I had, you know, several um, vivo vocabulary was one section. So they learned a lot of terminology about music that they might not otherwise know. Um, this is while they couldn't rehearse. Right, right. right. And, uh, you know, uh, special composers and we had clever little titles for each section of the newsletter it was it it was a wonderful way to keep them interested and at least learning and doing something even though we couldn't be in the same room together playing um i was all set to have a wonderful uh, lineup of um pieces of music for them on january 8th when we were supposed to return from a holiday break but then we were all, um, you know, not allowed to go back in person. So I still have all of that, and I don't really want to give it away yet because I want to uh, I want to have the enthusiasm for the kids to be able to discover this. It looks as though we are going to be able to go back to rehearsal right at the end of this month. Oh, yay! Yes, thank you. Thank you. Oh, that's yes. so exciting. So we are very excited. I had planned to feature all of my seniors. I had nine of them the year that COVID happened. Oh, wow. And they were going to play in ensembles. They were going to play solos with the orchestra, duos with the orchestra. It was it was going to be a wonderful feature program, and all of that had to fall by the wayside. So the best that I could do for them, I think, was I invited a journalist from The Sun, and that was Michael Nolan, who has just retired recently. And... Um, our our photographer uh, Mark Dust, Dr. Mark Dust, and I got y- generic yard signs for graduation for the children, and I put them all six feet apart in the yard. I had balloon bouquets and little <laughs> tchotchke bags with things in them that were important to them from the orchestra, and. Uh, they came to the house, and the other kids were invited to drive by and honk their horns, you know, in front of my front yard, and it was the best we could do for them during that time. <laughs> but now, in this return, I'm going to invite any of those seniors who were not able to have their moment to come back and um, play with us. I'm looking very, very forward. We're going to be playing for the Spinet Club in May. We're going to be playing. We always play a concert on Mother's Day at the First Presbyterian Church on D Street in San Bernardino. Um, our home where we rehearse. They've been so good and so kind to us. Uh, We play for the food distribution um, in June. We are hoping that we can go on tour. Um, I I think that January and February have been our summer break in the winter, so we may just roll right through the summer and keep going. (laughs) Good. I hope you do. Thank you. I cannot wait to hear these performances. Thank you. Please, please do come know that you are very welcome to be Yes, here. I can't wait. And, and we'll spread the word to try Thank and get you. some audience for you, too. Thank um, you very much. So wonderful to be back. 
We've got to take a quick break. You're listening to Musically Speaking on 91.9 KVCR. I'm Margaret Worsley. We'll be right back. Listening to Musically Speaking on 91.9 KVCR. My name is Margaret Worsley, and I'm talking today with Michelle and Michael Takia. Um, my next question is a little heavy, but we'll see. Yeah, because um, <laughs> it's yeah. But uh, I'll throw it out there anyway. Um, you've likely seen a lot of change over the span of your careers. As um, change is constant, has anything changed for the better? whether maybe that's something positive systemically or culturally. Uh, in terms of music, the music world. Yes. That's a, that's a good question. Um, I always like to meditate on the idea of what, what we've gained from, uh, from the past um, and not see, see it in a negative way. And it's it's getting more and more difficult, I might say, <laughs> to to do that. Um, one thing it I I think it is it has been useful for kids, especially kids that um, uh, are, who don't have the income or whatever as they grow up to be able to afford music. Music, as you know, growing up was very expensive. You buy those Henley editions and they're $60, $70, mm-hmm. uh, whereas kids now go and they download music from the Internet. I think that's from that standpoint, it has leveled the playing field a little bit so that kids have access to music and they can go uh, go to it. Uh, that, that's that been uh, a positive change however there was a there is a negative side to that too um <clears throat> i've noticed when i've had piano students that are working on more advanced works they they will instead of learning from a score how to play something they'll go to youtube mm. and watch someone or watch someone do uh, show them how to do it and they'll simply copy that and that has been a real drawback to me in terms of interpretation of music and teaching kids interpretation from notation. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's been a drawback because then what, what happens is is we have people imitating other people's, you know, performances or uh, their approach. So that... That's one thing I try to do as a teacher, and I know Michelle tries to do as a conductor and as a teacher, is to give them freedom uh, for their performances and to guide them to be able to intuit what the composer's intentions are from notation. There's a lot more to be learned from notation and from a score than there is from listening to another person play it. And I think that's probably... um, uh, is as positive a spin as I can put on uh, what's happening today in terms of uh, music education. I haven't really thought about that much, but you're right um, in that, that there is something creatively lost 
when we are either just learning by road or learning by someone else's interpretation, um, where is the creative process in in reading this music and exactly. figuring out how you're going to make it special? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And trying to imagine a sound, we have to probe the recesses of our mind a great deal more to imagine a sound uh, that we want. And if I'm imagining uh, something with cello and piano, I say, do I do I want the cello to be more here, and am I subservient there, or should we try to find a blend, a new color altogether when we're playing this passage? Um, we have to a lot of decisions to make that we have to imagine or, or oralize, so to speak, a u r, um, in order to move toward an ideal of sound that we want. If you're listening to someone else and just copying that, you haven't idealized the sound yourself. You're accepting their perception of it as as the as the rule of law in the piece. Whereas if you're looking at a score, you have a much broader, um, an infinite way uh, uh, to interpret a passage or to imper- interpret an entire piece, and um, and when it when a piece says allegro, as you know yourself, I mean that we have to decide what allegro is to this composer, <laughs> and uh, and what it is in this circumstance, and and so it's not, uh, you know, we don't have metronome markings before the 19th century, and so. Um, Allegro can mean a lot of things. Allegro can mean a lot of things. <laughs> so uh, same with, uh, you know, vivace and with adagio and andante and all these terms, they're qualitative terms, not absolute terms. And they will change depending on the circumstances of our performance, the acoustics, whatever, you know. The so composer, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All of it. That's so wonderful. I've been talking with Michael and Michelle Takia, two wonderful Inland Empire musicians and music educators. Do you have a favorite performance space around here in the Inland Empire? That's that's a that's a very good question. Um, I have to say, we were at Cal State San Bernardino in our undergraduate years before the new music building was built, and when that new music building was built, it was built and designed by a man who sought out the input of musicians on what they liked in music and and whatever. And this man really must have done a a great deal of study because that recital hall that exists now at Cal State San Bernardino is an absolutely beautiful performing space. Mm. Um, We've been in a lot of dead halls and a lot of over-reverberate halls, but this one had wood panel slats covering the ceiling, and there was a great deal of research done by this man, and he did a beautiful, beautiful job acoustically on that building. And if I'm going to perform in the area, I, I certainly like that space. Um, we we did perform in New York at Merkin Hall in, in part of the Lincoln Center that also had beautiful acoustics. That was a little bit smaller hall than the one at Cal State. Yeah. Um, and I just remember how beautiful the sound was and being able to hear myself and Michelle and the balance. And when we heard a recording of that performance that was made, it 
it verified that. It was a mm. beautiful balance. And um, so here, uh, I, I got sidetracked, but here in San Bernardino, I do prefer the the acoustics at um, Cal State San Bernardino. They're, it's just a beautiful hall. I like what they've done now in the California theater. Prior to when you were there, Margaret, they had uh, they didn't have those um, panels. panels in the in the back to set it up, and so the sound was very muted, and it it died after the first few rows. Oh, interesting. They have improved it greatly by putting panels behind the musicians, mm-hmm. and I assume they still do that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to remember that the theater was designed for an orchestra to be in the pit, mm-hmm. and so. It's amazing that the orchestra really does sound good in a pit when we've done Nutcracker there. And when you're in the audience, it's it was made for that. And when it's on stage, it seems to go up in the rafters and uh, and disappear. It really so, does. Uh, but it's so beautiful in it there. It is beautiful. It's a beautiful <laughs> hall. And as I say, my point was that they've improved it greatly over the years in terms of uh, adjusting things so that acoustics were were very good, and so soloists could be heard and whatever. No, it's absolutely one of the great theaters in Southern California, mm-hmm. the California Theater. I should, I should, and there's one other theater designed just like that. It's the Majestic Theater in Ventura, is designed by the same man that designed this California theater, and so that's a, it's one in San Jose too. I think I've been to all the California yes. theaters in the state, but it is a, a great, great old hall. Yeah. and I don't know if you know that the. Um, premiere of um, The Wizard of Oz was right there in that hall. Yes, indeed. Oh, a, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 an uh, one of those unknown facts well, that's yeah, just really exactly. cool about yeah, that theater and about is. San Bernardino. Yeah, it was about yeah. San Bernardino, right. You yeah. know, going back to the Cal State new uh, yes, building new that building. wasn't there when we were there, right. we would have to perform our uh, concerts and recitals in the physical sciences building. It was uh, sort of a lecture the hall. Lecture hall, yeah. Was, you oh, know, wow. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's where the concerts were always held. But when they decided and got funding for the new um, music department or music and theater department, they took several of us, this was in the early 1970s, they took several of us to a mountain retreat uh, here in our local mountains. And the architect, (laughs) the architect, well, we were poor (laughs) students, yeah. Uh, But the architect actually wanted and asked our input on what do you need in a in a, a, a practice room, or or you know in a in a hall f- for acoustical properties and so forth? Mm. And it was very valuable to him to hear it from the people who actually perform and use those. Uh, so he asked the students. He did. Yes. Yes. yes many of us they were there for the weekend. Yes. It made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Oh, I bet. And it made a big difference. even though they couldn't accommodate everything, you know. In terms of cost and so forth, he really did try very hard to include and implement as much as possible in the practice room situation, in the performing arts mm-hmm. hall, and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a testament to inclusivity mm-hmm. is usually better. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, you two have been in this area a while. <laughs> Despite the travels and the schooling elsewhere, you continue to call this place home. What do you especially love about the Inland Empire and San Bernardino in particular? Do you want to take it? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Um, it makes a big difference when you grow up with people that, that grow at the same time you do. Um, and they go on to do other things. And, and some of them do return. 
and you keep contact with them. Of course, I, I met my wife here uh, in this area, and so it has a special connection to me. And after traveling a great deal throughout, throughout the country and in Europe, you come back and you say to yourself, you know, there are things that we can do to help improve our area. And I ask myself, what does New York need with another pianist? Okay? <laughs> or what, you know, and so I say, I can't make that big a difference there in New York, but I can make a difference here mm. to kids there in, in the area. And they need it and they want it. And um, the fact that the area itself sustains three orchestras shows you that there is a love of music and that we can tap into that and help to benefit the community through that. So I think that's that's probably the easiest answer. And certainly the wish to give back, you know. Exactly. I'm I, sorry. That I, should be my first. I was remark. given a cello in the fifth grade. Mm-hmm. And now I can do that for students. And uh, it it's... It's just so heartwarming to be able to do those kinds of things for for kids who are experiencing what we had when we were the age they are now. It's it's just a wonderful feeling. It's a beautiful circle, isn't it? It is. Yes, it is. That's neat. Thank you. We've been chatting with Michael and Michelle Takia, San Bernardino musicians and music educators. So we're doing this interview in the studio of KVCR, where you learn something new every day, and you both are obviously lifelong learners. Can I ask what each of you are learning right now, whether that's a musical instrument or some kind of technology, how to navigate a new tax form? (laughs) What are you learning these days? Well, that's interesting, because as soon as... I wonder if we have the same idea. uh, That'll be interesting. Um, As soon as everybody was isolated and sequestered in their homes... We looked at each other and said, so which opera shall we study? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so we decided on... It was the same idea. Oh, yeah, great. Exactly. <laughs> um, so we decided on the Benjamin Britten Gloriana. Mm. We didn't know that one. We know many Britten operas, but we did not know that one. And so we dove into it full strength, and uh, it's become one of our favorite favorite operas, and we've seen uh, productions of it and listened to productions of it many times now uh, through the pandemic. But then as the time went longer and longer, we thought, well, okay, how about, and I think Michael suggested it, how about Die Frau und Schatten of uh, Strauss, mm. Richard Strauss. So yeah. that's where we are right now. We've yes. been immersed in that for some time. Yeah. Um, there is a preamble to this, uh, to this uh, urge to um, study new operas. We lived in Vienna for a year, and we saw operas almost every night. Even when you were poor, you could pay 95 cents oh to have Stehplatz or standing room yeah. in the opera house. So that's and of course I couldn't do that today. <laughs> Could not stand for uh, five hours of for a five hours opera. of a, Var- oh, no. a Wagner opera. But at then when you're young and frisky, you can you can do that. So we saw dozens and dozens of operas while we lived in in Vienna, and then we worked with a great opera conductor, and that was Stuart Robertson, who conducted the San Bernardino Symphony and was a conductor of. Um, Glimmerglass Opera and uh, and sometimes for New York City Opera, right. um, and he we loved uh, attending uh, 
his opera performances in in New York and whatever. So we'd always get together and said, oh, let's study it since it's, you know, we'd study the libretto. If it's a foreign language, that obviously adds uh, another element that we'd have to spend time with. But we'd spend several weeks studying, you know, going through the scenes and just listening to it every night or or I'm sure I'd drive my kids nuts playing through passages on the piano and going through. (laughs) It was worse when I was studying Moses and Aaron of Schoenberg. And no. the kids, the kids <laughs> uh, they said, and as soon as they'd heard me play that card, I remember my daughters. Oh, no. <laughs> no Not Schoenberg. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that was an exception. I had to spend a lot of time on that to internalize that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but in any event, um, it's become a, a sort of hobby of us in our spare time to study operas. <laughs> and it's it's always better if we have a performance where preparing to uh, attend or whatever. But um, yeah, I it, just before the pandemic, as a matter of fact, we were working on Pelis and Melisande of Debussy because LA Opera was doing it. And we really wanted to hear that. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and that was all canceled. But I have heard that it's on their schedule this year. I just saw that too. Yes. And I'm so excited and to I go. I want to go to that. So I'm getting back to Pelis and Melisande. And, and plus, I'm the French comes a little easier to me, so that'll be that'll be fun. Very good. I love that so much to study such an epic work together. Oh, it yes. is, it is so fun. <laughs> and you're lucky, too, to have a husband who's a musician because uh, that makes all the difference in the world. It, yeah, uh, there's an understanding there for sure. Absolutely. That's neat. We Years ago, we had neighbors uh, behind our open French windows, and we used to listen to the opera at night. One day he came over and he said, I, I try to listen to everybody's everything that they listen to, but boy, you guys listen to some weird stuff. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he man. Say, he didn't say exactly those words. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, Maybe you can go to one of those AMC um, at the Met where they, you know. Yes, we've done that. Yeah. How yes. is that? I yes. haven't Well, done actually, actually, you almost get a private performance out here because nobody else goes to the opera. Oh, my goodness. So yes. we've seen. Yes. Uh, the one under the sea with the French pearl oh, uh, fishers. Pearl fishers. Oh, yeah. Zizé, which that was, was a beautiful, beautiful, oh, beautiful. And then we saw and the, um, the uh, glass Philip Glass yes. opera, or was it not? Is it was Philip it glass? Ecknotten? Yes. Or? Okay. Yes. yes. I love it. Oh yes, Ecknotten, I did too. Yeah. Oh, I dove into that. Yeah, we yeah. saw that live, um, oh. and and I dragged my my husband out to to LA yes. Opera because they yes. did it a few years ago and. Uh-huh. Um, it was a little risque because um, they yeah. were nude. Yes. And yes. He, he was like, is this how all opera is? <laughs> Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> yeah. But those Metropolitan um, uh, virtual satellite concerts yeah. are supposed to be just wonderful. They, and that's yes. a really nice way to do it. It is. Once again, getting back to your former question, has anything improved? That I really like. Mm. And super titles at the, at, at the bottom and, and so on and so forth. That's a real advantage to people that can't afford to fly to New York and pay $200 for a ticket. Mm-hmm. This is a great opportunity, and the, and the high-definition visual is just terrific on right. the film. So that is definitely... A, so AMC, of course, being the movie theaters that are um, live streaming these opera performances um, for uh, movie theaters around the world. From the Met. From the Met. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they are they are wonderful. I highly recommend those to people who are opera lovers. 
This is Musically Speaking. I'm Margaret Worsley, talking today with Michelle and Michael Takia, who are a beloved musician couple in the community. So um, typically on the show, we do a short set of rapid fire questions. Uh, would you be open to some of those? Sure. <laughs> I'm not very spontaneous, so. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I'll start. Okay, we'll start with Michael in just a word or two. Um, who inspires you, musician or non? Yes, I think um, creative people inspire me. When I see great actors mm -hmm. on on the screen, I'm inspired by that. And I, I know my wife is inspired by skaters. She often uses that as a, a metaphor for Boeing when she sees skaters on there. You mean work, ice skate? Ice skate, yes. Yeah. Uh, people that work better themselves at something they really love that's always an inspiration to me, I think, is, mm -hmm. is, is a sort of thing. And, of course, there are many, many great musicians that inspire me a great deal. But I thought I'd digress to non-musical subjects just yeah. for a moment. Yeah. So, Michelle, you must be in your heyday with the uh, Olympics and all the ice skating. I am. As Michael said, I, I do use the blade on the ice as a reference for the bow on the string. And somehow that speaks to me. Mm -hmm. um, I am inspired by the musicians of Chanticleer. Mm -hmm. I first heard them in the early 1990s in Princeton, New Jersey, and uh, they they inspire me very much. They'll knock your socks off. Yes. They're just phenomenal. Yes. Yes. What a great group. They are. Who do you listen to when you're driving? KVCR. Good answer. <laughs> no, but I really do. Yes. <laughs> Very good. And yes. is it the same answer for both? Um, are you uh, in the car together? It's funny because um, I, since we're non-techno, I, I often have Sirius XM on mine, which she can't get on her car. So her <laughs> default station is always KBCR. Very good. And so, um, but yeah. Oh, I love it. Um, for our friends who don't necessarily listen to a whole lot of classical music but are interested in getting into it, where would be a good place to start? First of all, I would recommend definitely live music. I think that's the door to open music to you if you're really interested in, in hearing. And we, we can't always know what the best performances are, but we can know that a live performance is definitely going to speak to you more than just simply a recording. Um, recordings have always in the past been a reminder of of the experience of a live performance. Now they've sort of come to substitute for a live performance. And I think if you're interested in getting your children or yourself involved, definitely go to live performance. If you're in San Bernardino, definitely the symphony. You should be attending the symphony. Take your children. They often do children's concerts, especially at holiday times, lighter concerts, lighter fare. <clears throat> but make an effort to go out and enjoy the ambience of being surrounded by the sound in an acoustical space. I think that's the best advice Absolutely. I can Very often when a, a parent comes to me and says, my four-year-old wants to study music, what should I do? That's the first thing I say is take them to live music concerts. Mm. Allow them to experience, to hear, to see, so that they have some reference for, you know, studying whatever it is that they are going to choose, piano or 
whatever it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, which one does the cooking? Um, and what's your favorite thing to make? I think you referenced this earlier, so I'm just going to look at Michelle. <laughs> with looking a, with at a the French right. dad and a German mom, yes. I'm sure. She Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> what's your favorite uh, thing to cook? Oh, gosh. Well, I married an Italian, so it has to be pasta of some kind, I'm sure. <laughs> As you can tell. And Michael knows how to cook about two things, I think, and yes, they're yeah. delicious when he does them. <laughs> But uh, and they're both delicious. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, do you have a favorite rock band or hip hop group? Oh, I wouldn't know one from the next. <laughs> when the Super Bowl was on this weekend, I kept text- texting my son Misha. I said, "Who are those people on the stage?" <laughs> Okay, now who is that woman? Who is this man? I really had no idea. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> the, yeah, and I. I've, I'm eternally embarrassed by this question because we're often called upon to play popular pieces when we do weddings for friends. In fact, almost invariably, that would be the case. So I have to make an effort. Obviously, we grew up in the 60s. We're <laughs> fond of the Beatles. We're, you know, the Rolling Stones. And, and of course, Michelle just did an arrangement of the Beach Boys' um, Good Vibrations. Well, what happened out. was we were on tour, and the <clears throat> priest said... Wow, this orchestra is great. I, I I wonder if I wonder if they could play the Beach Boys medley or Good Vibrations or something. So we looked for a string arrangement of it and found it, and we surprised him. We invited him up the next year on tour. We'd like to have Father Mark come up to the stage, please. We have a gift for you. And so we started in with the Good Vibrations and the whole thing. And oh my gosh, I didn't know it. I had to ask other people, "What's the uh, tempo of this?" I, I, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't in my wheelhouse. It. I just. <laughs> <laughs> and this priest was a former rock music reviewer. Yes. Okay. So, he was... uh, so we wanted to be on our best behavior here. So. But. Uh, <laughs> that was probably a blast. Did you have a was. theremin with it? Yes, As we did. Fact, you did. Yes, wow. We did. Well, it wasn't a real theremin. It was a saw and a a violin bow, <laughs> and it was performed by our driver, um, Mr. Bill Polly, who teaches fourth grade with Rick Dulock's um, wife at Palm <laughs> Avenue Elementary School. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> it's a small, wonderful a musical small, world. It, it is. It is. And he'd never done anything like that in his life, and he was nervous and scared, but it worked brilliantly. Very good. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. Michelle and Michael Takia, it has been a treat and an honor talking with you today. Thank you so much for being here and for all that you do for our community. Oh, thank you, Margaret, thank you. for your thank invitation Thank you so much, Margaret. This was, a, this was a real joy speaking with you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this month's show. You can listen to Musically Speaking on streaming platforms including iTunes, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We'll include a link to Symphony Jeunesse when we post this program to our website on kvcrnews.org forward slash musically speaking. And I do hope you'll join us next month on the fourth Saturday and following Monday for our next episode of Musically Speaking. I'm Margaret Worsley. Thanks for listening.